This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Kiesi. Um, Okay, I have a paper, uh, Spontaneous Resolution of Post-Hemorrhagic Ventricular Dilatation in Preterm Newborns and Neurodevelopment. Oh, you're going to have to help me, I think, but (laughs) the first uh, author, Emile. Oh, that's a hard one. Emile Groboivin. Oh, Oh, that's that's That was nice. First of all, the L, the X is not, uh, is silent. Well, Uh, that's good to know. (laughs) But I think it's Groboivin. And I may be even wrong, but uh, yeah. All right. Okay. The L and the X are silent. I learned something new every day. Okay. Um, This is uh, in pediatric research coming to us from Canada. And the question is, basically, if you have post-hemorrhagic ventricular dilatation, does resolution of the ventricular megaly, you know, uh, without intervention, um, predict a better prognosis? So... um, I'm going to preface this with saying they used a lot of the guidelines based on the um, the Elvis trial. If you're not familiar with the Elvis trial um, or the Elvis study group, that's the early versus late ventricular intervention study um, in post-hemorrhagic ventricular dilatation. So they were really trying um, to answer the question, does early versus late treatment um, benefit developmental outcomes? Is there a threshold in which we should be uh, treating babies? So a lot of the parameters come from that work. So the inclusion criteria was consistent with those studies. They used, um, it was a multi-center retrospective cohort study of newborns born at less than or equal to 34 weeks gestational age um, who had cranial ultrasounds uh, with IVH grade two, three, or four using Volpe's criteria and performed in the first six weeks of life. So they were reviewed, those babies were reviewed, then to find, uh, identify newborns meeting the criteria for post-hemorrhagic ventricular dilatation. And they use the definition as a ventricular index greater than the 97th percentile for gestational age and an anterior horn width greater than six millimeters. Um, and that was, again, if you're not familiar with the Elvis trial, that was the lower thresholds um, for intervention. So they identified these babies who had post-hemorrhagic ventricular dilatation and then survivors, so lots of these babies um, died, um, and we'll talk about that in a second, but of the surviving babies, they were divided into three groups. Group one, spontaneous resolution of um, PHVD, which means kind of dropping below those thresholds. Group two, persistent PHVD without intervention. And group three, progressive PHVD receiving neurosurgical intervention. Like I said, they were considered to have spontaneous resolution when both lateral ventricles returned below those uh, ventricular index of the 97th percentile or the anterior horn width less than six millimeters um, without any intervention. Obviously, it was classified as having bilateral when both lateral ventricles met the criteria and unilateral when only one lateral crossed the threshold. And of note, there was no systematic protocol for the management of PHVD at those institutions during the study period. However, they say newborns were typically considered for intervention once they crossed the threshold for severe PHVD, and they had a kind of a group, a consistent group of neurosurgeons that would make the decision together to intervene. 
Um, yeah, and so for, uh, like, for like a reservoir or something, right? That's right. That's right. Okay. And they'll talk about the types of interventions. And um, in general, lumbar punctures were not routinely performed for the management of PHVD, which has been studied. And, and, and there's not a lot of consistency on the recommendations for that and who's doing what to manage PHVD with lumbar punctures. Um, in terms of the neurodevelopmental outcomes, uh, at all the study center, the newborns with PHVD were referred to neonatal follow-up clinic regardless of gestational age of birth. They had developmental assessments at 4, 9, 18, and 36 months corrected age. Diagnoses were made by specialized pediatricians as part of the neonatal follow-up clinic uh, on or uh, around the 18-month follow-up visit. Um, epilepsy was defined as the use of anti-seizure medication in 18 months. And then the gross motor function classification system, uh, was extracted from the 36 month visit if available. And they were looking for global developmental de delay, which was uh, defined as a significant delay greater than or equal to two standard deviations below the mean on standardized tests in at least two developmental domains. And then they had a primary outcome of severe neurodevelopmental impairment uh, defined as the presence of global, global developmental delay or cerebral palsy with a gross motor function classification system score three, or, uh, three to five. Okay. So they had 5,238 newborns born at less than or equal to 34 weeks gestation who were admitted to these two uh, tertiary NICUs between 2012 and 2020. 476 of them, or 9%, developed IVH grade 2 or above. They had a total of 128 newborns who met the criteria for PHVD. So 128, 40 of whom died prior to discharge from the NICU. Um, as expected, the incidence of PHVD was lower among newborns with grade 2 IVH, uh, 19 out of about 300 relative to those with grade three, 48 um, out of 58 and grade four, 61 out of 101. These were statistically significant. The median age of death in patients with PHVD was eight days and most deaths did occur in the context in the context of PHVD were associated with this reorientation of care towards comfort measures for severe brain injury nearly 80% and we talked about this in a previous study so many of these babies um are we change the type of care we're providing to comfort care um so that's important to note you know why why and how are these babies dying other causes of death included hemorrhagic shock, secondary to severe IVH, 5 out of 40, severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia, 2 out of 40, pulmonary hemorrhage, 1 out of 40, neck, 1 out of 40, and quote-unquote uncertain cause, 2 out of 40. Newborns who died had younger gestational age at birth, smaller birth weights, and a higher proportion of grade 4 IVH compared to survivors. So 39% of the cohort, um, 88, uh, sorry. Of the 88 survivors, um, 34 or nearly 40% experienced spontaneous resolution of PHVD. This was the first group. That's one. actually quite reassuring of a number. Yeah, for sure. Don't you think? Yeah. That's almost half. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. It's, it's interesting because many of the deaths were about moving towards comfort care in the face of, you know, post-hemorrhagic ventricular dil dilatation. So, 
you know, it's interesting which babies were redirected and which babies weren't. But 15 or 17% had persistent PHVD without any intervention. That's group two. And 39 infants or 44% underwent neurosurgical intervention because they progressed in almost all cases to severe PHVD. Interestingly, group three, the ones who got the neurosurgical intervention, had the highest mean gestational age. And I had to think about this for a while, but that's because... um, a lot of the deaths were in the younger gestational age groups. Mm-hmm. So primary outcomes overall, um, uh, I told you 39% of surviving newborns experienced spontaneous resolution of PHVD. Um, the rates of grade four IVH were similar across all groups. However, group one had smaller maximal ventricular um, measurements. So that makes sense. Um, and smaller maximal anterior horn width than groups two and three. So the babies who were most likely to have spontaneous resolution had smaller abnormal measurements. Mm-hmm. That makes some sense. In addition, a smaller proportion of newborns in group one met the criteria for severe PHVD, 15%, relative to newborns in group two, 40%, and group three, 95%. So the babies who got intervention were more likely had to met criteria for severe post-hemorrhagic ventricular dilatation. Newborns in group one were also less likely to have bilateral than those in groups two of three, 47% versus 93% versus 100% in the group three. Mm. In uh, of the 19 surviving newborns with unilateral PHVD, 95% experienced spontaneous resolution and none received neurosurgical interventions. I think that's useful. I feel like we have a lot of babies who have this unilateral ventriculomegaly that we're not sure what to do about, but 95% had um, spontaneous resolutions. In group one, the median time interval between um, diagnosis and spontaneous resolution was 14 days. I think that's also very valuable because if it's going past that, then you should give it a second thought. In group three, the median time between diagnosis and diagnosis of severe PHVD was six days. I think that's also very interesting because it gives us something, some anticipation, what to expect um, in terms of... um, progression. And the median time between PHVD diagnosis and the first neurosurgical intervention was 12 days. I thought that was very interesting. Okay. Of the 39 um, newborns in group three, so the babies who got intervention, 37, so 37 out of 39, crossed the threshold for severe PHVD prior Prior to the first neurosurgical intervention, two newborns received an intervention without crossing the severe threshold because the dilation was progressing so rapidly. Six newborns in group two, uh, so PHVD uh, that did not regress but no surgical intervention, crossed this threshold for severe PHVD, but either remained close to the severe threshold or experienced ventricular decompression below the thresholds within a few days, so never uh, underwent intervention. So about the interventions, ventriculosubgaleal shunt, uh, was performed uh, more often than ventricular reservoir. So 21 out of 39 babies got ventricular subgaleal shunt and nine out of 39 got ventricular reservoirs as a temporary measure, a temporizing measurement. The rate of conversion to uh, ventricular peritoneal shunt was 90% 
for those babies who got the ventricular subgaleal shunts um, and was 78% for those babies who got the ventricular reservoir. There's some other data about shunts, but I'm going to delay that for now. Fair enough. Oh, hello. <laughs> Group one had the lowest rate of severe neurodevelopmental impairment, 15% versus 18% in group two and 66% in group three. In comparison to group three, group one also had lower rates of CP, 19% versus 46%, and particularly of quadriplegic CP, 8% versus 29%. And they had lower rates of CP with a uh, low uh, gross motor gross motor score, 8% versus 31%. Lastly, group one had lower rates of global developmental delay, 15 versus 60%, lower rates of epilepsy, 4% versus 29%, and involvement, um, this data point, involvement of greater than or equal to three allied health professionals at 18 months, 31% versus 71%. Um, In regression analysis, adjusting for gestational age and IVH grade, For every one millimeter increase in maximal anterior horn width above the six millimeter threshold, the odds of severe neurodevelopmental impairment increased by 19%. Not surprisingly, newborns with grade four IVH in group three had significantly higher rates of CP than newborns with grade four IVH in group one. So uh, I think, I mean, what they were trying to answer was if we intervene on these babies, can they have similar neurodevelopmental outcomes to the babies who resolve on their own? And I think the answer is no. Yeah. But I think <laughs> in terms of prognosis and anticipatory guidance, um, having quick resolution spontaneously of uh, ventricular megaly is, is a good prognostic sign. Agreed. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.